You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 148. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. Today on the podcast, I just want to get right into it and start discussing the question that has been posed to me again recently by someone, which is, what do I do when I feel like I've wasted my life? Especially for this particular person, because they are past their athletic, you know, physical prime, and they are well into their career, they have a mortgage, they have bills to pay, responsibilities to other people, their life is not their own. And yet, simultaneous to that, they are at the end of one thing and staring into the future, wondering then, well, if I don't have that anymore, if I'm not living the life that I lived for so long up to this point, now looking into the future, what does life look like? What do I do now that I look over my shoulder? And I see regret. I see missed opportunities. I see self-destruction. I see how I set ambushes for myself and the consequences for myself and those around me. So what do I do when I feel like I wasted my life? And now at this point, I don't, I don't know. Where do I start? Do I have to go back to the beginning? Do I have to re-educate myself? Do I have to learn how to live again? Do I have to learn how to speak and interface with other people all over again? Because up to this point, everything that I did was influenced, heavily influenced by my drug use. What do I do? And addiction is an extreme case. But I think all of us at some point as we age... As we mature, we get some miles on the tires, we look over our shoulders, we look around in the present tense, and we ask ourselves, how did I get here? And where am I going with all this? And do I want to keep going in the direction that I've set for myself or that others have? And if we look over our shoulders often enough, if we are self-reflective, we will see plenty in our past and maybe even just in the choices we make today. There's plenty we can look at and say, why did I do that? And then that voice starts to rise in volume and pitch. The little voice that lives in our head, rent-free, that screams lies at us all day, every day, telling us that we are failures, that we are unsalvageable, that we are irredeemable, We are hopeless cases. But is that true? Well, I've talked about it in past episodes, the gravity that negativity carries with it and how easy it is for just one comment or one stray thought to ruin our entire day. For myself, for example, Sunday morning, woke up, first thought, very first thought, I'm still under the covers. My head is still on the pillow. 
I open my eyes and my first thought is, on Sunday morning, well, tomorrow afternoon at 4.30, you have to drive to the gym and train. And from there, a cascading effect happened. Where I went from one anxiety to the next, to the next, to the next. And I could not get myself grounded in the present. And it's very frustrating when you spend so much time and dedicate so much energy and attention to treating anxiety and recognizing this is what it looks like, this is how it manifests itself. And a seemingly innocuous thought, well, you know tomorrow afternoon you have to go to the gym and train, created a cascading effect of thoughts that lasted all morning into the afternoon and exhausted me to the extent that I didn't even feel recovered until the middle of the day on Monday. So by the time I did go to the gym Monday night, I felt hungover from being up until one o'clock in the morning on Saturday night, staying up late Sunday night because my brain wouldn't shut off, waking up then Monday exhausted, knowing all day Monday that I have to go to the gym at 4.30 and I've got to train. Then to get to the gym and not feel mentally and physically engaged, just kind of floating through the night. It's easy to not only in that moment be hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up for not being able to push aside those thoughts to leash them or put them in a cage and then move on. Especially when you've put so much time and effort into treating yourself and preparing yourself for those attacks so that you can repel them. So when they come and something so simple, such a simple thought, invades our mind and infects our hearts so that we end up ruining moments, conversations, carrying that weight on our shoulders into our vocations, hiding it from other people, pretending to play the role of the person who people refer to as you. It's a heavy weight. If you're depressed, it's the same. If you struggle with addiction, it's the same. If you struggle with resentments, you struggle with regrets, you struggle with anxiety, you just simply struggle with the question of why. It's a heavy weight. And it can leave a person helpless, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless, feeling like I thought I was going in the right direction, but now it feels like I kind of threw the anchor overboard and I've just been paddling in circles around this anchor. And of course, as I said, the older we get, the more we mature, the more experience we put behind us, I think anyways, in my own experience, it actually becomes easier to beat ourselves up because we have so much more evidence to testify against us. And so again, if we think of it in terms of a kind of Don Quixote situation, leaning at, you know, tilting at windmills, believing they're dragons, it's easy to do that. It's easy to look at your younger self through the eyes of your older self and to judge your younger self unfairly. As if at 23, you should have known what you now know at 46. We have to learn, I think, no matter how old we are, even if you're 23, and you're looking back at decisions you made when you were 16, not so long ago. 
You were 16, not 23. You didn't see the world through the eyes of a 23-year-old. You didn't have all those experiences between 16 and 23 to reflect on and to use. And so the decisions you made when you were 16, of course, are not the decisions you make when you're 23. And so it's important to remember that when you judge yourself or you judge your memory of experiences and phenomena and situations, you are not judging purely on objective knowledge, but rather purely on subjective knowledge of the memories as they present themselves to you in that moment. And how we remember events and experiences changes with time. It's inevitable because all of our past experiences are stained by our present tense, what do you want to say, wisdom that we've gained in the interim? Because that's what wisdom is. Wisdom comes from experience, and experience teaches us wisdom. And as one philosopher who I can't recall at the moment said, wisdom is just surviving bad choices. It is a history of making bad choices and surviving them. That's really what wisdom is. I said this to my son this morning. He's 10. I said, all of the wisdom that I share with you is simply my failures. And what I am attempting to teach you at 10 is that you don't need to make the choices that I made when I was 16 or 17 or when I was 25 or when I was 39. I can't stop you from making those choices, but I can offer you an option, which is my wisdom. That is to say, I have a lifetime of experience of failure and I survived them by the grace of God. And so you don't need to be a drug addict. I did that for you already and I can tell you, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So you can choose to use drugs and you can choose to allow yourself to be used by drugs. But as your father, I will teach you something from my own experience, from my own failures, from my own recovery. Drug addiction is not sexy. It's not exciting. And no matter what they show you on TV or in the movies, addiction is not like that. No matter how realistic they may present it to be, in a dramatic performance, it's still entertainment. And drug addiction, as it is depicted by Hollywood, pales in comparison to the reality of drug addiction. There is no cut, there is no post credit scene, there is no editing bay for addiction. You go into it, you live it, and God willing, you come out of it. But you bring out of it a cargo ship worth of regrets, Damage, pain, resentments, sorrow, guilt, shame, you name it. And then on top of all of that, you've got gratitude. You've got joy. You've got satisfaction because you're sober now. And you're trying to sort out all of these things while simultaneously having to go to work and go to school and have relationships with people and lead a life that resembles something that you might define as ordinary, not normal. God forbid we be normal. That's a curse word in our house. But at least ordinary in the sense of having a regular schedule, being responsible, showing up for people. And what was it? Jose, Jose Ortega y Gasset. He wrote Meditations on Quixote. Going back to the Don Quixote reference, 
uh, Jose Ortega y Gasat said, adventure shatters the oppressive, insistent reality as if it were a piece of glass. Adventure shatters the oppressive, insistent reality as if it were a piece of glass. It is the unforeseen, the unthought of, the new. Each adventure is a new birth of the world, a unique process. How can it fail to be interesting? For me, that is a powerful statement by Gasset. Because it goes right to the root of that feeling of, I've wasted my life. My life has been a series of failures, a series of painful experiences, wasted existence. Maybe the reason you feel that way is because you are stuck in place. Maybe you were moving in a particular direction and then you stagnated, you stalled out, you got comfortable and you forgot why you set off on that path in the first place. Or you reached your goal for that moment and that goal became your ceiling. And so you said, you know what? This is enough. And maybe it is. But as always, you have to then adjust your goals, adjust your definition of success, of adventure, of responsibility, whatever it may be. But if you want to get out of a state of stagnation or misery, you have to go on an adventure. What I did at 24 is I left the country and lived in another country. That was my adventure. I literally walked into the wilderness and disappeared for almost a year. And that experience for me was transformative, life-changing. To this day, I still have not recovered from that year that I lived in Mexico. I haven't recovered from the month that I spent living in Guatemala in 2001 as a missionary. Whenever I have gone outside of my comfortable place, outside of my regular schedule, outside of my illusion of control, I have been forced to assume the position of a child, of a student. Because when you go somewhere that is foreign and exotic and alien, you are the stranger. You are the new person, the new face. And you may speak the language, but you speak it with a particular accent that betrays your origin. And you behave in a certain way that doesn't quite fit with the culture that you find yourself in at present. You don't know all of the history. You don't know about the culture. You don't know the idioms and the colloquialisms that they use to communicate with each other. You don't know their stories. And so you have a choice. You can behave like a bull in a china shop, trampling over everyone in front of you so that you can have your grand adventure and post it on social media for all to see. Or you can assume the posture of a child. That is, you are helpless. You have no legal rights within this culture. You have privileges. And those privileges are extended to you by every single person that you encounter. And so you can choose to be humble, choose to speak respectfully, and to treat others with respect and ask them questions so that you may learn. Or you can choose to ignore all of that and simply bull your way forward over all of it. And maybe you have a great adventure according to your definition. Maybe you have a great time and you've recorded it all on your phone and on social media. But maybe you choose the opposite. 
Maybe you choose to shut all of that off, put it all away, and simply have an adventure. And it's your adventure. It's not anyone else's. It's yours. And like any student, your textbook that you carry around with you is your interface with all of these people and all of these places. And in that, you will be enriched and you will grow and you will learn a lot about yourself because all of the trappings of safety and security are stripped away. So when you go on an adventure, even if you don't leave the country, travel to a different state and learn from people where you're at. They may look the same as you and sound the same as you and share similar stories and traditions as you, but they are different than you. If I go to Pennsylvania or I go to Louisiana or I go to Alaska, even though that's technically the United States, I have had totally different experiences in all three of those places that were transformative for my life and changed me because of the people that I encountered and the experiences that I was allowed to participate in. Those were adventures. Sometimes you can go for an adventure in your backyard. It's just that simple. It's a question of, can you humble yourself and become a student? Can you ask questions and then listen for the answers and then learn from them and grow from them and improve from them? You don't have to travel around the world or live in a third world country or climb a mountain or dive to the depths of the sea to have an adventure. All it requires is openness to other people and to other experiences that violate the sanctity of your regularly scheduled program called life. Especially when we are miserable and especially when we feel as if we have somehow squandered our existence. I think it is important for us to get out of our comfort zone, walk away from friends and family, because all of that contributes to our sense of being stuck in place, the same faces, the same conversations, the same work, the same everything, day after day after day. When that's what you're striving for, the ordinary, it's great. It's the best thing in the world. Because up to that point, speaking as a recovering addict, every day was an adventure. An adventure in securing more drugs, getting my fix. So when I got clean and sober, one of the great things that I learned from AA was ordinary is awesome. Being ordinary, having a schedule, being responsible, showing up for people, it's awesome. Knowing that your car is parked in the same place every morning because you parked it there the night before, and you don't have to call around and ask friends, is my car parked in front of your house? That is a great feeling. Being able to pay bills is a great feeling. Not having people hunting you down because you owe them drug money, that's a great feeling. And so ordinary for me is awesome. However, sometimes, usually two or three times a year, I get in a rut and it's not so awesome. And I want to go on an adventure, but I have a wife and I have children and I have responsibilities. I have two gyms that I teach at. I have a church that I pastor. I have deadlines that I have to meet with articles and books. I can't just drop everything and go on an adventure. But I work it out so that I can at least once a year. And I go on my adventure and I get out of my comfort zone and I open myself up to new people, new conversations, new experience. 
And I come back enriched by those moments, by those engagements. And when I forget that, I notice that I pull away from people. I notice that I, I isolate more. I notice that I don't engage with other people as much, and I'm not as interested in what other people have to say. And from that grows resentment, feelings of nobody understands me, nobody knows what I'm going through, my life is irreparable, it's a dumpster fire inside of a dumpster fire, inside of a volcano. volcano. And so I think we do need those adventures, like Gasset says, because it it shatters reality like a piece of glass and reminds us you're not in control and that's okay. That's a good thing actually. And you don't know everything and that's good too. And the reason that your life has become predictable, the reason that you live with regrets, the reason that you feel like you've wasted your existence is because you have dropped anchor and you are kindly paddling in a circle. And maybe you've been doing it for decades And as painful as it's going to be now, because you are set in your ways and you've gotten used to this way of life, as painful as it may be at first, the reward, the long-term benefits far, far outstretch the short-term pain. And so uh, Teofilo, Teofilo Ruiz, The Terror of History is what the book is, The Terror of History. Teofilo Ruiz says there are many lucky or unlucky, for whom the course of their lives shows little or no departure from these well-ordered routines. As comforting as this may seem, in the end it is also an unspeakable horror. There are many lucky or unlucky, for whom the course of their lives shows little or no departure from these well-ordered routines. And as comforting as this may seem, in the end it is also an unspeakable horror. Why? Because what happens when we live with little to no departure from our well-ordered routine, from our schedule? It does give us comfort. It's like the old cliche that I was taught, why do we wallow in our own shit? Because it's warm and it's comfortable. It is very, very difficult for anyone, especially those of us who have done it. It is very difficult to climb out of your own shit because it is warm and comfortable. It is a well-ordered routine. It is your schedule. But yet, there is where the horror comes in. I think a lot of people imagine that hell is like Milton describes it in Inferno. Seven levels, six of which are just fire and magma and demons which pitchforks and everybody being tortured. Or is it nine levels of hell? I can never remember. I always thought it was seven. Anyway, someone correct me. Remind me. Seven or nine. I know the bottom level is where Satan beats his wings and it freezes everything around him so he's encased in a block of ice. I just can't remember if that's the seventh level of hell or the ninth. I assume seven because there's seven levels of heaven and seven being a holy number. Anywho, I digress. Help me out. But that's not hell. That's Milton's description of hell, but that's not the biblical description of hell. Milton's description of hell is actually based on Gehenna, and Gehenna is a real place. It's actually a valley behind Jerusalem where they would burn all of their trash and all of their refuse, and it usually burned 24-7 because 
you're burning all of the waste of all of the people in and around Jerusalem. And so when folks envisioned what hell must be, they looked at Gehenna, the Valley of Gehenna. They looked at the molten crap and garbage that burns 24-7, and they said, that's got to be hell. Imagine having to stand in that for eternity. But I offer a very drastic and a very different definition of hell from the Psalms, for example. You may have heard it referred to as Sheol, or the place of the dead, or hell, or Hades even, in the Gospels. The underworld. It is this. According to the psalmist, at least, and the prophets, hell is a cold, dark place, like a tomb, where worms devour your flesh, and God never speaks to you. You see, folks in Milton's hell have hope. And the hope is that the torture will end sometime, or that there will be a new kind of torture sometime, or that perhaps Jesus can come and pull them out of the mire. And so in Dante, in the Inferno, when Virgil and Dante walk through hell, all of these folks who are being tortured all of these folks who are damned reach out for them and beg them to lift them up so that they might enjoy just a moment of relief from liquid hot magma, to quote Austin Powers, <laughs> Dr. Evil, and their torture. But that's not hell, not as far as the psalmist and the, the, the prophets depict it. Hell is a cold, dark place where worms devour you and God never speaks to you. And that's the definition of hell for the biblical writers. God doesn't talk to you. You see, when God shines his face on you, as uh, Numbers 6, 6 says, the ironic blessing, he is turning his face toward you to speak to you. And in turning his face toward you to speak to you, he, quote unquote, shines his glory upon you. That's a sign of God's grace and mercy. That's a sign of his favor toward you. When God turns his face away, biblically speaking, that analogy is used to describe condemnation, judgment, and calamity. It's apocalyptic stuff when God stops talking. So the hell of hell, biblically speaking anyways, is God no longer talks to you. And for those then, with their well-ordered routines, with their regularly scheduled lives, the horror of a well-ordered routine is the routine itself. It is the schedule itself. It is knowing that tomorrow will be the same as it was last week and the same as it was last month and so on and so on and so on until eventually you retire or you graduate or you die. But it's going to be this way from now on in perpetuity. And you simply hope or pray that God would please change up your life at least a little bit. Not a lot. We don't want to upset things too much. That's painful. But just enough to make it interesting. But that really is biblically the definition of hell. Just please, God, talk to me. Please shine your face on me. Please make things better. That's the hell of hell. Versus where is freedom? Where is freedom within your routines? Where is freedom within your schedule? Where is liberty in your relationships? Where is freedom within your studies and your learning, 
Is there any freedom in your vocation and in your career? Or have you so tightened up your schedule, your routine is so dialed in that there is no freedom? You simply go from one thing to the next to the next because you do have bills to pay. You do have mouths to feed. You do have people that you answer to, that you are responsible to. And it becomes a grind. And I am not a fan anymore of the grind, as it's described by so many self-help gurus. And I don't care how cool they are or how many ultra marathons they may run. The grind will grind you down and it will break you and you will die. Because the grind that they're talking about is your confrontation with reality. The reality about your body's capabilities, your mind's potential, your emotional strength or weaknesses, your vulnerability. The grind is reality saying, yeah, you could be better, but everyone has a ceiling. And the more you strain toward growth, the more you strain toward being a better person, the faster you're going to hit that ceiling. Because it is the law of diminishing returns. You can grind all you want at 28, but I guarantee you at 39, you will not be capable of grinding it out the same way day to day. And when you're 51, that window has closed, brother. I may think and see myself as if I'm in my early 30s, but my body most definitely is 51. I got a lot of miles on these tires. And when I lie to myself, when I push too hard, when I grind too much, I break. I break mentally. I break physically. I break emotionally. And then I can't show up for anybody. I can't work. I'm hurt. I'm ground up. I don't have any emotional energy left over for anybody else. So I'm not a big fan of the grind anymore. Instead, my basic philosophy now is do your best all the time. When I'm at the gym, do your best. Even when you don't want to. Even if you joke about not doing your best, give it your best. Not your all, not perfection, not 110% or any of those other cliched statements that really are meaningless. Just do your best. Give it your best. That's it. Do your best. And maybe your best tonight is 40%. Maybe tomorrow it's 83%. Maybe your best is 100% for this round. Maybe it's 10%, but it's your best. Accept your limitations in the moment. Accept this is what I am capable of right now. Not five minutes from now, not tomorrow, but right now, this is my best. And let your best be good enough, right? Be your best for each other. Even if that means, you know what, today I need to take a mental health break. I am exhausted. I'm suffering from compassion fatigue for other people. You know, mom called me on the phone or my brother phoned up to say that this, you know, he lost his job and now they have to move. And I was talking with my neighbor and they're going through these hard times, whatever it might be. You get stretched too thin like butter over too much bread, to quote Frodo. And, or no, Bilbo, Bilbo, not Frodo. And what ends up happening is that the grind grinds you down. And now you're no good to anyone, especially not yourself. You're just hurting yourself. 
And it creates this cascading effect of negative thoughts, negative feelings, negative choices. So you end up digging the hole deeper, thinking you're digging yourself out. So no, I don't think we should, you know, sell out for the grind. I don't think it is all about the grind. I think there are many people, as Ruiz says, who are lucky or unlucky, who because they get stuck in the routine, find that their life has become a horror story. And it is a horror story of mundanity. It's mundane. It's ordinary. It's boring. It's predictable. And for most of us in today's society, where new experiences and new sights and new sounds are constantly being thrown at our faces, mundanity is a curse word. Ordinary is a curse word. Boring. Ugh. I don't want to be boring. It's the, the worst thing you can be on social media is boring, even though everyone on social media is a cliche, because we're all just copying each other, feeding off of each other. Again, we are, we are producing the product, and we are the product that is consumed. So we are consuming other people's product, that is their lives, as they present them to us, but they are consuming us. I was talking to my friend, my co-host for the Band of Books podcast, Christopher Gillespie, and I said that it's remarkable that now that we have been so public and vocal about my son's brain tumor, you really find out who your friends are. And many people that you don't even know come out of the woodwork to say, hey man, we're praying for you. If there's anything we can do, you just let us know because I appreciate you and I appreciate all that you do. So people that listen to this podcast, people that listen to the Band Books podcast have been much more vocal and reached out to me more often than many people who say they're my friends. And that hurts. It hurts a lot. Because the people that you thought you could depend on, well, they pull back or they act in such a way that they treat you as if your son doesn't have a brain tumor. And why are you so concerned? And that's a whole side avenue about faith and pain too, but just because you believe in God, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you don't experience real pain when someone you love is afflicted and suffering. I think it's a mark of a sociopath to not experience pain and fear and frustration when someone that you love unconditionally is afflicted. And yet, so many people that I thought were my friends have all but ignored my son's affliction and in no way offered me any encouragement or even to say, man, how's your kid today? Or, hey, just to let you know again, we're praying for your whole family. They say nothing. They treat me as if everything is the same as it's ever been. And that is truly hurtful because you're carrying pain and you're carrying fear and you're carrying frustration and hope, definitely hope, but you're carrying it. And you're carrying it for everyone in your family. And they're carrying you. And your routine then, your daily routine, is, okay, I have to make him as comfortable as possible today because we still have two weeks until our neurosurgery appointment when we can even discuss surgery. So for today, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about two weeks from now. Don't worry about surgery. Your well-ordered routine today is make him as comfortable as possible 
Show up for your other children. Show up for your spouse. Show up for the people that need you to show up for them because you are their pastor. Because you do have an episode of the podcast to put out. Because you do have articles that are due. You do have deadlines. You do have to teach. You have to show up at the gym and train. You have to do all of the things that you need to do to stay sober and to keep your head straight. And the more people that you know are in your corner, the more encouragement you receive, the lighter that burden becomes. It doesn't change the pain. It doesn't lessen the distress. But it does lighten the burden, so to speak, because you you know now all of these people are praying for this person. It's not just the five of us or the six of us. It's all of these thousands of other people are praying for my son. They're praying for my family. And there's strength in that. There's encouragement in that. And that's no small thing when you are in a ditch, when you are in the hole, when you are climbing on your hands and knees across the valley of the shadow of death. People that share that with you, that shoulder that burden with you, it's fantastic. But my friend said then, the reason that that happens, that people that listen to the podcasts came out so strong and are so encouraging is because I get on the microphone at least once a week and I pour my heart out and I speak as much truth as I am capable of. And so in a way, you know me better than many of my friends because you actually listen to me. And many of the people that call themselves my friends don't listen to me. And so, of course, you believe that you know me better than those people that don't listen. And you would be correct, actually. And so I appreciate all of you for your encouragement and for your prayers. I really do, especially right now. Because the unspeakable horror of the present tense for our family is a brain tumor and a 12-year-old that has a brain tumor. And the daily reminder that I am not in control, and I do not know what the answer is. I do not have the cure, and I cannot heal my son. And the helplessness that you experience in that moment, then, can create a cascading effect, like I talked about, that will absolutely cripple you if you allow it to. It will consume your every thought, especially when you lay down to sleep. And so you have to break out of that as much as you can. Uh, So I have to go to the gym and train. And when I go to the gym and train, I have to give it my best. Because I have to be my best for my son. And if I don't put forth my best effort at the gym, as a teacher, as a training partner, as a martial artist, if I don't put forth my best when I prepare my articles, when I'm writing my books, if I don't put forth my best in my job, then I haven't set the standard for my life to such an, uh, a degree that I hold myself to that standard in all of my interactions with people and in all that I do and undertake. And if I don't set that standard uniformly across every platform, then how can I show up to do the best episode that I can do today or cook the best meal that I can cook today for my family or be the best coach that I can be this afternoon for my students? or be the best training partner that I can be when I spar. I can't pick and choose buffet style when to give my best. Because I don't believe that's any way to live. I don't believe that's a good way to live. I believe, as I've said, 
my personal ethic, my philosophy is just do your best. Give it your best. Even if it's 10%, give it your best. Set that standard for yourself. Don't be afraid to fail. It's a part of life. Don't be afraid to let your students tap you if you're trying to teach them something. Don't be afraid to say, you know what, I can't show up, I'm sorry. That's literally the best that I have to offer is that I can't show up right now because the emotional exhaustion that I'm experiencing from what's going on with my son is emptied my tank and therefore I got nothing else. I'm sorry. Friends will cover for you. It's just that simple. People that care will take care of you. They will. And those who don't, you know, they're not your friends and you can't depend on them in the future. Doesn't mean you can't be friendly. Doesn't mean you still can't go out for a bowling night or whatever. But it means then that when you are in a serious spot, you're not going to expect anything from them. You're not going to ask anything of them. You're going to turn to the people that showed up for you before. They're going to help you relieve, at least in the moment, that whore. Relieve, not relive, relieve. So going back to Jose Ortega y Gasset, he writes in, um, yeah, Meditations in, on Quixote again, same book. Soon after we begin living, we become aware of the confines of our prison. It takes us 30 years at the most to recognize the limits within which our possibilities will move. We take stock of reality, which is like measuring the length of the chain which binds our feet. Then we say, is this life? Nothing more than this? A closed cycle which is repeated and always identical? This is a dangerous hour for every man. Gassette is pointing out, when we take a step back and we look at what's happening, when we take stock, as he says, of reality, what we're really doing is putting a measuring, we're measuring out a length of chain that binds our feet. We're enslaving ourselves. Because what happens when we take a step back and ask, how did I end up here? Why am I doing this? Where is this all going? Especially as we say, have I wasted my time? Have I wasted my life? Have I wasted my future on this relationship, on this job, on this thing? What happens? Well, we end up asking, is this really life? Is this all there is? Is this the status quo for my life from now on? And this is it? There's nothing more, just this? Just go to work, pay the bills? get a new car every couple years, get a new iPhone every year, update my MacBook every two or three years. But I'm going to see the same person every day, talk to the same people every afternoon, make the same drive over and over and over again until finally I can't. Is my life a closed circle? Is it the eternal reoccurrence of the same, as Nietzsche said? And so Gassette says, that's a very dangerous hour for every person because your perspective will color the answers. Do you see going on an adventure as something to dread and therefore to run away from and avoid? Or do you see something in an adventure that is invigorating, 
and the anticipation of that and the nervousness and anxiety around going somewhere new and exotic, that actually fuels you and it, it propels you into those adventures. It's all about perspective. Every year when I go back to Mexico to visit my Mexican family, people here say, well, aren't you afraid? Because my mom and dad live in Playa de Tijuana, which is kind of the professional suburb of Tijuana. And of course, everybody knows about Tijuana, but they only know about one part of Tijuana. They don't know about where my mom and dad live. They don't know about the community. They don't know about the people. They only know what the mass media tells them about Tijuana. And to be blunt, I actually love this city. I love Tijuana. I love it. But I also know where not to go if I don't want to get in trouble, right? I don't need a prostitute. Therefore, I stay away from the parts of the city where prostitution occurs. I don't gamble, so I stay away from the same part of the city where gambling is conducted. I don't do drugs, so therefore I stay away from that part of the city that's run by the cartel where they sell their drugs. Instead, I stay to the other parts of the city. Now, are there still dangers? Of course, it's Tijuana. The cartel runs the entire city. But the cartels have designated this part of the city is for prostitution and gambling and drugs and all of that stuff. This part of the city is for tourism. Never, ever cross the streams with these two things. We don't want to drive away the tourists. The tourists that want to turn right, let them turn right. The tourists that want to turn left, let them turn left. And everybody else that lives there knows the rules. There are certain places that you can be at certain times of the day. And at other times of the day, you better clear out or you are accepting the consequences. And some of my favorite food trucks, some of my favorite taco stands are in dangerous parts of the city, or at least on the edge of those dangerous parts. But if I go at lunch, for example, I'm relatively safe. But if I go at nine o'clock at night, well, you roll the dice, right? There's rules to this game. If you're going to go on an adventure, be a student and find out what the rules are real fast so that you can enjoy your time and thrive in those environments. When I was in Guatemala City, I was told point blank, don't leave the hotel after eight o'clock at night. You will be shot. Because at that time in 2001, tourists were being shot. It was a rough time in, in Guatemala City, which actually is every time you go to Guatemala City. And you simply just follow the rules. And you're in your hotel room at night, and sure enough, after 8 o'clock, you start hearing gunshots. You start hearing screams, crying, the sounds of the city. And in the morning, you get up and you go outside, and it's as if you're in a different world altogether. There's rules to the game. And yet, once you learn the rules, going on an adventure, no matter how long or short the trip, can be extremely fruitful and productive, especially if you do it with other people that you trust and that you can enjoy those adventures with. I myself prefer to go alone. A lot of that's just the trauma of childhood and being forced to deal with my emotions alone in my room as an adolescent. But I like going on adventures alone because I don't want to rely on anyone or have to worry about anyone. Plus, for me, when I go back home to Tijuana, I like to go out to coffee with my mom and dad. I like to go out to eat with my mom and dad. I like to go on trips and have adventures in Ensenada or other places with my mom and dad. My wife, on the other hand, loves to shop with my mom. She likes to go to bazaars and flea markets. 
She likes to stand there for 45 minutes talking to every single person that my Mexican mom knows, which is just about everybody. And so they can spend an entire day wandering along. Maybe they get to 10 or 12 stalls altogether. And yet my wife will come home with a suitcase full of extra clothing because the people gave her free clothes or gave her jewelry. One, because she is my mother's daughter. And two, because my mother introduces her to these people and my wife tries to speak the language and she wants to be a student and understand them and learn about their life. And people are encouraged by this and they're, they become endeared to her because of this. And therefore they want to show that to her. So they give her free things. To me, that's the definition of hell going on vacation and shopping the entire time. Whereas my wife's definition of hell is having to sit in a coffee shop for three hours, staring at the Pacific Ocean and talking about some obscure Korean German philosopher. But that's my jam. And so we take separate vacations. And we spend 12 to 14 days apart. And when we come back from our time apart, we appreciate each other more. Because we were absent each other. And we remembered, we were reminded by our absence why we're married in the first place, why we love each other in the first place. And if we went on vacation together, it wouldn't be the same experience for either one of us. And so we go and we do it alone. And it works for us, as an example. But it's usually at those times when I need to leave my comfort zone, I need to leave my environment and go into a foreign country because I've gotten into a rut I've stagnated and I can feel it and other people can see it. I lose my enthusiasm. I lose my excitement. I'm not as relaxed. I'm not as free. And that's usually the time when I need to go and just let all of that be stripped away from me by the Mexican sun and the salt of the Pacific Ocean and the pulpo tacos and the torta trucks and the stories and the songs and the people that those things emanate from. I need that to inundate my soul. And what happens as a consequence is the artist comes back out again and the poet starts to write again and the musician starts to compose and sing again and the philosopher starts to write again and think again in a a very sober way, in a very, not positive, but in a very grateful way. Grateful for my mom and dad who essentially adopted me when I was in Mexico in 1996 for the first time. And I was 24 and I was basically a lost child. And the doctor and his wife, they took me into their family and gave me their name and they taught me so much. And I am so grateful for that, that all these years later, we still are together. And for me, that's my, that's my base of operations. That's my, my spiritual home. So I tell people when, when I go home after this podcast, for example, that's where I live. That's my home. And this is my family whom I love. They are flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. But if you ask me where my home is, where my soul finds its rest, it's in my parents' living room in their apartment next to the Pacific Ocean in Playa de Tijuana. That's where my soul lives. And when I'm not there, I can feel a certain emptiness in my life, like my foot's been amputated. I can still walk around, I can get a prosthetic, but I'm hyper aware of the fact that I'm missing a part of myself. And for me, that's the first experience I had in Mexico. And it's the same experience I have every time I go back there. And for each of us, it's going to be different. But 
if we never go on those adventures, if we never go outside of the confines of our regularly scheduled program, how are we ever expected to discover our soul's home, our spiritual fatherland or motherland? How are we supposed to meet new people who become our family, who become our soul mates, our brothers and sisters? How are we going to eat new foods and have our palate explode with excitement at these new flavors and spices and herbs and sensations? How are we going to open up our olfactory nerves and our auditory senses to all of these smells and these sights and these sounds that are so foreign And yet when we hear them, they become like music that soothes us, that calms our soul. And it puts us right again and says, no, this is real. And this is where I need to be right now. So then we can go back into our regular routines, re-energized. Because we know then, okay, this isn't a closed circle. This isn't all there is to life. There is more than this. And it's waiting for me. Just a plain a flight away. And my friends are a flight away or a drive away or a walk away. All that I need is there, but I have to go to it. And in order to go to it, I have to go on an adventure. And I have to harness that anxiety and that anticipation and that excitement. And I have to go into it as a student, as a child, and I have to be humble about it. And I have to be a gracious guest. And I have to ask good questions and listen actively listen to the answers and learn so that I can become a part of that family, a part of that culture, a part of that people, that tribe. And in doing that, I will be enriched and God willing, they will be enriched by me. So Jack London, one of my favorite short story authors, in his Tales of Adventure book, he writes, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather my spark burn out in a brilliant blaze than be stifled by dry rot. It's better to burn out than fade away, to quote the man. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The proper function of man is to live, not merely exist. I shall use my time. For me, That is the dividing line that runs through every conversation that I have, every interaction that I engage in with other people, every relationship that I have. Even when I ask myself those questions, is this all there is? Is this life? It is the difference between living and existing. Because as I've said, especially since 2020, most people I know, a majority of the people that I encounter are existing. They're not living. They're avoiding death. They're so afraid of dying, so afraid of getting sick or disease, so afraid of pain and suffering that their entire life is orchestrated to avoid pain and suffering, to avoid sadness. And their life is a horror show as a result because they're not living. They're simply doing everything they can to avoid death. And they don't know the difference. And so I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather my spark burn out in a brilliant blaze than be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom in magnificent glow, 
than a sleepy and permanent planet. The proper function of man is to live, not merely exist. I shall use my time. And so with the time that we are given, the most valuable commodity that we possess, which is time, if our goal is not to live, then what are we doing but squandering our time? And in squandering our time, should we not admit that we are the most miserable of all people? How is it that we best use our time to exist rather than to live? Well, as Schopenhauer said, reflecting on Don Quixote, since I'm using him as a running theme today, instead of giving up and settling for a repetitive existence, Don Quixote's life was structured around his quest. And yes, he attacked windmills, believing they were dragons. And yes, his love was not requited. Is it requited love or is it unrequited love? No, his love was unrequited. There we go. All those prefixes. His love was unrequited because the object of his affection was not a princess. She was not a damsel in distress. She was just a woman. But for Quixote... His world was fantastic because he was a knight-errant, a ronin, so to speak, in his own mind. And his best friend, Pancho, he was cool with that. He supported that. He was his squire. And yeah, they tilted at windmills. And yeah, he wrote love poems and confessed and professed his love to a woman who didn't love him like that in return. But his life was a quest because he refused to abide by the status quo. And everyone said then, he's crazy, he's insane, he's a madman. But in Quixote's world, he's a knight on a noble quest to defend the princess, to kill the dragon, to save the realm. And in the end, I ask the question because I am not settled on the answer myself. Is that so bad? Is that so bad to be thought crazy or a madman or a mad woman simply because you don't see reality the same way as everybody else? Because you refuse to accept the status quo? That you've asked the question, is there more than just what our five senses can grasp? Is there more to reality than this mechanical, reductive way of looking at the world through a very warped and perverted understanding of the scientific method? Is rationalism all it's cracked up to be? I know postmodernism isn't. If postmodernism was so great, if rationalism was so great, why are so many people so depressed and suffering from chronic anxiety and OCD and addiction why are suicides going up every year? Prescription medications, more prescribed every year. Anxiety, depression, and OCD, more cases every year. If our world is so great, if the innovations and the technology that we let run our lives are so great, then why are we all so sad and miserable? Why are we not living? And why are so many more people every year simply existing? That's why totalitarianism is sweeping the globe. 
That's why fascism has become the regime du jour for most countries. Because most people are merely existing and that breeds a certain level of apathy. It creates nihilism, right? Fatalism. And so they look at it and say, eh, what's the point? Who cares? Right? As long as they help me avoid dying today, I don't care who's in charge. I don't care what form of government we have. I don't care what they say. If it means that I can maintain this repetitive existence, I'll do it. I'll get the injection. I'll ingest the food. I'll watch their garbage TV so long as it means I can stay comfortable, I can avoid pain and suffering, and my life continues in a very undisrupted, unanxious, uninspiring, unadventurous way. And for a majority of the population, especially in the industrialized world, this seems to be the status quo. And so I ask you again, is it so bad to be considered a Don Quixote in today's society? I would argue more so it's actually a great thing. Because do you really want to be considered one of the three blind mice? Do you really want to be a part of the herd? Do you want to march in step with the slaves? Do you want to be just another brick in the pyramid? Or do you want to charge at windmills? Do you want to wear pots and pans and call it armor? Do you want a best friend who will go on the adventures with you because he loves you that much? Or do you want to punch the clock, process your TPS reports, stay late, come in early, pay the bills, take your vacation once a year, pay your mortgage, wallow in your own shit because it's comfortable and warm. Maybe you do, and that's cool. Nothing wrong with that if that's your choice. I don't know why you're listening to this podcast at this point, though, if that's what you've chosen. But back to Schopenhauer and his comment on Quixote. He says, Don Quixote is an allegory of the life of every man who, unlike others, pursues an objective, an ideal end that has taken possession of his thinking and willing, and then, of course, he stands out as an oddity in this world. Quixote, the novel, is an allegory, right? It's an allegory of the life of every person on earth who is unlike others. And what makes Don Quixote in this example unlike others? He has a purpose. He has an objective. He has a goal. He has an ideal that he pursues and that he lives by, by the way. It directs and informs his entire life. And that ideal has taken possession of the way that he thinks and the way that he makes choices. His whole worldview is affected by this ideal. And so, of course, because he has an objective that he pursues, because he has an ideal that has possessed him and it informs his worldview and therefore how he interacts with other people and reality, he stands out as an oddity because everyone else doesn't have an objective. They're just going along to get along. They don't have any ideals. Their ethics and morals are given to them by the governing authorities or by whoever is in charge at that moment. They do what is expected of them by their neighbors simply because it's tradition or it's what we do or it's the law. Whereas Quixote says, 
no to all of that. Why? Because it doesn't align with my ideals. And sure, it gets him in trouble to a certain extent because reality is unbending. But at the very least, he's a much more interesting dinner partner than anybody else in the village. His stories are better. The conversations are going to be fantastic every single time. Why? Because he's a raving lunatic, that's why. (laughs) But in the best possible sense of that term. He's not dangerous to anybody. He's not a homicidal maniac. He's not going to, you know, take his clothes off and smear feces all over his body and run down the street screaming that the aliens are coming. He's got a noble ideal that he's pursuing. And like I said, he sees himself as a knight errant, as a ronin, attempting to save the princess, kill the dragon, save the realm. And so, as Tennessee Williams said, make voyages and attempt them. There's nothing else to life except setting sail for the far shores. That's what makes life worth living. As Ovid said too, the bold adventurer succeeds the best. And as Heraclitus, my beloved Heraclitus likes to say, those who approach life like a child playing a game, moving and pushing pieces, possess the power of kings. And there it goes back again to learn the rules of the game, learn the rules of the culture, of the clan, of the team, of that operation. Learn the rules. And then play it. Play it like a child plays a game, moving and pushing the pieces. Because when you do that, as Heraclitus said, you possess the power of kings. You're not a pawn on a chessboard. You are the player moving the pawn. And it doesn't matter what your status in life is. It doesn't matter what class you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. If you learn the rules to the game, You possess the power of kings. And then, and this is key, children will instinctively rebel against monotony and boredom. As my 10-year-old likes to say, I didn't do it because it was boring and it wasn't fun. I know, but I need you to do your chores. Well, I don't want to. They're not fun. I need you to do your schoolwork and finish up so we can do fun stuff. I don't want to finish my schoolwork. It's boring and it's not fun. Children instinctively rebel against monotony. They rebel against boredom. And so, like Quixote, they want to go searching for an adventure, and you're holding them back from that. And if we as adults can recapture that, the seriousness of a child at play, we cease to be pawns on the board, and instead, we become adventurers. We become the player. Oh, and Nietzsche, of course, right? A man's maturity is to have regained the innocence of a child at play. There you go. Because playing cultivates boldness. Playing turns you on to life. Playing will determine your values, your ideals, the kinds of adventures that you have that end up defining your existence. And so you leave the security of your home and all that comes with your regular routine and you go on an adventure. You become an explorer. You become a student moving from here to there, active, searching out people, searching out experiences. Not as a tourist. Tourism is passive. You just kind of float through these places, take pictures, sample the local food and move on. You're you're not active. You're not learning anything. You're just a tourist. 
because a tourist is passive. They just are waiting for interesting things to happen. And so if you have a tour guide in particular, they'll just point out all the interesting things and you'll say, oh, take a picture of that. Versus what I do, which is I just ask people at the cafe, where is a good place to go that tourists don't go to? And who should I find to take me there? I want to go off-road. I want to go to the places that the tourists aren't taken. And I want someone to take me who can teach me, who can be my teacher. For me, that's the best experiences that I've ever had is doing that. So, you know, even when I go to restaurants, for example, and the waiter or waitress asks what I want to order, I always ask, what do you eat? What's your favorite thing on the menu to eat? Because I worked in a restaurant. I managed a restaurant. And I can tell you, at some point, I ate everything on the menu. Because especially when you work every day, you get kind of tired of eating the exact same dish all the time. So you try different things out. And so I usually just say, hey, man, let's go on a little culinary adventure. Tell me what you eat on your break. I'll have that. What do you want with it? I don't know. Whatever you have with it. I trust you. And if it turns out that I like it and it was a great recommendation, I'm going to give them a double tip because they helped me out. They gave me that little adventure and I learned something new. I like this too. So next time I come to this restaurant, instead of ordering the same thing that I always order or not knowing what to order, this waitress recommended this last time I was in here and it was fantastic. Do you have that again? Well, we don't, not tonight. Okay, since you're my new server, this is a new experience. What do you eat on your break? What do you recommend? And then they'll tell you. And you order that. And sometimes it's great. And sometimes you say, eh, it was all right, but not my favorite. Probably wouldn't need it again, but I had a new experience. I think there's a lot of power in that and a lot of reward that comes off the other side of simply saying to other people, I don't know, what do you do? Where do you shop? What would you recommend? And then trying it. Opening yourself up to those new experiences and new people and new voices and new ways of seeing the world and approaching reality versus being a tourist, which is to say, eh, just tell me, well, is that interesting? Should I pay attention? Should I take a picture of that? Okay, I'll do that. You never go off track. You never go on an adventure because everything is safe and you just float along. Like when you go to one of those, you know, Universal Pictures theme park rides or whatever they may be. Again, to me, that's the definition of hell. Going to Disney World or Disneyland or Universal Studios, that's, that's hell upon hell for me. I don't like people in general, ironically, um, in large groups of people, especially tourists. I just, I, I actually become homicidal in those moments. <laughs> like, just let me go. Just let me wander off by myself and find someone to talk to who's not on this bus. And so I'll end with, uh, I got to end with a Nietzsche quote, right? From the gay science. Let's do that. Life has not disappointed me, he writes. On the contrary, I find it richer, more desirable, and mysterious every year. Ever since the day when the great liberator came to me, the idea that life could be an experiment of the seeker of knowledge, and not a duty, not a calamity, not trickery, and knowledge itself. Let it be something else for others, for example, a bed to rest on, or a diversion, or a form of leisure. But for me, it is a world of dangers and victories in which heroic feelings also find places to dance and play. Life as a means to knowledge. With this principle in one's heart, one can live, not only boldly, but even joyfully, and laugh joyfully too. Yeah, phenomenal as always.
And so that's, I just wanted to talk about that with you today and say, if you do have regrets or you question whether or not you've wasted your day or your time or your life, whether it be drug addiction, whether it be a relationship that you were in that breaks up for whatever reason, you lose your job for whatever reason, and you, you're sitting there saying, now what? What do I do now? All the years that we put into this, what were they for? And what am I supposed to do now? Where are we supposed to go from here? How am I supposed to understand this? Or when you're afflicted or someone you love is afflicted and you're sitting there asking why, why does this have to happen? Why, what do I do? And the answer is you can't do anything. You have to wait for the surgeon to tell you what to do. What do you do? Well, for those of us of faith, we pray. We pray a lot. We pray without ceasing. <clears throat> Apologies for my shaker bottle noise. We pray and we wait on God because he will, works in us to both will and to do the good. And that ultimately, no matter what happens, we live in the hope of a cure, of healing, and of resurrection to eternal life. Because life is pain and life is suffering because we are all selfish people and we are all in a battle against reality all the time attempting to conform reality to the way that we wish it to be, assuming in our selfishness that we know what's best and that our choices are the best choices and that we have things under control when none of that is true. And when we lose our job, when we divorce or break up, when we get out of school and we're out there in the job market and nobody wants to give us an interview or we can't get hired, when we don't know where our next paychecks is coming from, when we're laying flat on the floor, wondering where our car is at, wondering why there's people outside our house waiting for us to come out so they can shoot us because we owe them drug money, wondering how we're ever going to get out from under this debt. It is easy to ask, what am I, what am I doing here? Have I just wasted my life for no reason? And what do I do now? The answer is go on an adventure. Sometimes going to rehab, that's a pretty big adventure. Do that. Go to an AA meeting today. That's an adventure if you've never been to an AA meeting. Because the fear, the anticipation, the anxiety about it. Just call somebody and say, you want to go out for coffee? Let's go out for coffee. But let's go somewhere we've never been before. Let's go out for dinner or lunch. But let's go somewhere we've never been before and we're not allowed to order. We're going to let the waiter or waitress order for us. You know what? We haven't gone anywhere in a long time. Let's throw a dart at a map. We're going to go there. Go on an adventure today. Get outside your ordinary routine. Talk to somebody you've never talked to before. Reconnect with somebody that you haven't reconnected with in a long time. Leave. Leave. Go for a hike. Get on a flight. Board a train. Get on a boat. Whatever. But go on an adventure. Live. Live, live, live. Don't just exist, but live. Because time is amazing and beautiful and precious and fragile. And we never, ever get it back. And no one can beg, borrow, or steal it from us. And we can't take it from them either. We are each given a certain number of seconds and minutes and hours. 
So why squander them in existing when you could actually live? And so I hope today that this episode motivates you to live. To be more open, more honest, more transparent, but most of all, more free. Lean into your freedom. Use it to be humble, to be grateful, to be satisfied, and to go on adventures, whatever they may be. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for your support and encouragement. Thank you for all your prayers for my son. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for helping it grow on Spotify. Every week I gain more subscribers on Spotify. So thank you so very, very much for that. I really do appreciate it. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again real soon for a brand new episode, Space Monkeys. Peace.